Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Principal Analyst Phyllis Davidson and Principal Analyst Lisa Gately to discuss why creating audience-centric content is so difficult and how companies can do a better job of connecting to their audiences through content. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much, Jen. Thanks for having us. So why are companies struggling with this? Why are B2B marketers and others struggling with this concept? We know that it's so important to be audience centric in everything we do and content we create and be relevant and and relatable, but it's still a struggle. Yeah, it's so true. Even though we've been talking about uh, the need to focus on the audience for years, it continues to be a challenge. And even when you talk to companies who feel that they really understand the need for audience centricity, actually doing it is harder, I think, than a lot of us thought. One of the main reasons is, look, companies exist to sell their products. And it's tricky keeping the focus on the customer needs as opposed to on the thing that you're selling. So what we find is there's still that focus on the thing that they're selling. So there's a lack of clarity around buyer behavior and organizations have not made the leap to really effectively collect data about that behavior. What are buyers actually consuming and what are they engaging with during their journey with uh, a vendor? And understanding that reality can go a long way to inject reality, if you will, into content planning. And, you know, we have found that, and Lisa, I'll ask you to maybe add to this, but like 61% of buyers in North America say they get too much content from vendors. And 61% also say that the content is just more style than function. Lisa, can you add a few stats to this? Because I know there are more on this topic. Yeah. So we when we talk with a lot of our clients, we know from research that our B2B marketing orgs aren't generally using uniformly audience definitions and prioritization in their content plans, only 41%. Um, and we'd see about 34% of teams even using value propositions when they get to developing messaging. So if you're looking at audience orientation and what's the value your organization brings to them, that's not not a part of things at the starting point for a lot of organizations. So what does that mean in, in real terms then? What sort of scenarios based on with that as a backdrop are kind of resulting? You know, I've got a good one. And in fact, um, today I was working on some of our Forrester B2B Summit content. And um, I was reminded of this somewhat startling stat that we found. And it's from the Forrester Engaging Content Test, uh, which the last time was in 2019. And in that test, is your content on your website engaging? 54 out of 60 websites across 12 different industries actually failed, right? And it, you know, it brings me back as a practitioner, it was always so difficult to get a website experience right. And there's so many people involved in making those decisions. So what you end up with is over-engineered or under-engineered web experiences. So um, too few or too many ways to get to the same content, both can be a problem. I worked with a client at one point 
to dial back personalization, which is interesting, right? Because everyone's geared up for personalization. But in that particular case, and I've seen this other times, the personalization on the website forced viewers to interact immediately upon landing on the website in order to make choices before they could view any content. And that's just taking the personalization thing too far from the standpoint of asking your audience to do something to get to where they need to go. In another example, and we see this more and more with the availability of solutions for incorporating chatbots, the overuse of chatbots. So the viewers are getting a promotional pop-up for every page they click on, and those pop-ups are asking them to engage now, get contacted by a sales rep, like real leaps in engagement. So in some ways, we, we've got so much technology, we often will tell our clients to um, really um, go through and audit their technology and avoid that over-engineering until they're really ready to effectively use those features. Sounds like it's a shiny object situation happening yep. with out there as well. So, okay, we we have, you know, what this could look like not going so well, but but tell us the flip side. What happens when when an organization does do this well, understands where the audience, you know, what their needs are, what the value would be of to them or where they are perhaps in their journey or relationship with with the organization. Yeah, so um, I, I mentioned personalization a minute ago. So we certainly see the right things happening as well. Um, one example I like to use, because we certainly see a lot of account-based marketing work happening in B2B. And uh, in terms of personalization that works, we're seeing ABM experiences that put a buyer on a path as soon as they land on the organization's website based on that viewer's IP address. They know basically what company they're from. So that means they can send them on a journey based on either their persona or an industry. And then from there, it's much more likely that an individual will click around um, and find what they need. Um, we also see progressive profiling increasingly as you know, cost of entry, if you will. So keeping um, form, fields really down to one or two uh, form fills with contextual questions included within that form so that a client's profile is built over time. You're not just doing a gate or no gate to content. Uh, there's actually, you know, basically you're asking and progressively profiling folks as they go through your content. So that as they go deeper with your content, you're asking them a question here, a question there. So they're engaging with you more. They're more likely to give you information when it goes in uh, that kind of approach. Hey, Phyllis, I'd love to add, we both have worked with clients who just want to start from wherever they are. And some of it, I've admired your work you've done where it's really understanding the personas, rolling up your sleeves and figuring out what content you have and defining what is appropriate for a persona by buyer's journey stage. Um, a lot of that, I would just encourage some companies, no matter what their state of technology, or sometimes if it's turnover within the team or use of lots of vendors and agencies, it's clarifying direction for everybody so that they know what is intended for your personas and the buying group across the buyer's journey. Well, it, it strikes me, you know, to understand your audience, right? 
but that gets a little tricky as you start layering other piece parts on and being, you know, regionally relevant or local localized in, in your approach can be daunting and difficult to, to be tackling. So maybe Lisa, you could talk a little bit about what are those challenges and, um, and then we can kind of go from there as to how to tackle that. Yeah. Some of those challenges are a result of the recent trend we've seen towards centralization, meaning we see 73% of organizations centralizing their content ownership or centralizing their localization and translation activities. A bit less on that localization translation. But when you start to do that, it's all well intended. What you are doing, though, is creating some possible divide between the central teams and then your regional or field marketers who are closest, of course, to the audiences. So a lot of times in talking about that, there's some missed opportunities really between the teams in communicating about local market dynamics. I talk to a lot of teams on both sides. So if it's a regional marketing team, sometimes they may not know what content is coming when. They're concerned about how are they gonna use this very quickly and get it into market. If there are pieces they've gotta localize and translate, it creates pretty high pressure situation to use it. Um, And that's to say nothing of content they may receive as part of a global campaign, but when they get it, they realize, I really can't use this with my audience. So there's something different that they recognize in local needs, whether it's the personas who are involved or other ways that they're gonna activate the content. The flip side then too is the global team. Um, Very rarely do I hear of global teams who really have a handle on what's been used where around the world. They may not be aware of locally created or translated content. So that cross-sharing is very difficult. Um, And it's really, it's a tough one as far as validating messaging, even at early stages before you create the content, making sure your teams are looking at the messaging and the key inputs before content. And is there guidance there? And maybe we can, maybe, you know, we talk about this a little bit later, but that's a balancing act, right? Like, you know, if you're sort of, skewing one way, wholly centralized, not taking local inputs, but the other way, you know, where things are just created in in region with no sort of consistency, there are pros and cons to, to both of those systems. So is there a, a middle of the road recommendation as we think about localizing content? Yeah, there, there is. And really, we talk with a lot of clients about some of these things come back to communication and having repeatable approach between the teams of how to go about doing some of that. Um, I would say that having some of those critical inputs in the very outset, you know, understanding the roles and responsibilities um, and having good messaging inputs. We find some of the guidance before you get started about the audience and about messages will be a good backbone for your content. But as you say, you know, there's, there's some best practices we can get into, but on the communication side, it's also, is there a plan that's shared early enough to give feedback? Um, and validating that continuously. Also, where do people find out, like if it's a calendaring or some kind of plan, what will be arriving when? And a repository, are there shared practices so that people know where to go get assets? And of course, when you get them, how are we updating all the customer facing teams who will be using it? A lot of times we find people are receiving assets with no direction about what to use, when and where. What are other common challenges that you're hearing? I mean, Lisa, you obviously just touched on a handful there in your response, but are there other sort of themes, um, common themes that you're hearing from clients on this topic? 
You know, one of the things that I've seen also is that sometimes there's a, a major audience change from region to region for the same solutions. And if there is a uh, more of a centralized approach, um, I've had some experiences where a regional team was, it was, they were pretty much dictated to in terms of what they needed to use and how to use it. And yet they needed to customize content because their personas were different. However, and Jen, this kind of builds on your point about, you know, being too much in one direction or another, because, uh, because there was a centralized approach in the organization as a whole, that regional team really got no dollars, right? No budget allocated to assist with, um, well, first of all, even the further persona research, uh, but also to assist with customizing and you know adapting content. So you do need that balance uh, to really make things work. There's always going to have to be customization at the regional level. That's a great point. I've also talked with campaign leaders who will admit from the very start, if their team is doing a lift and shift of brand or product message, it really lands into this no man's land, you know, meaningless territory. So a lot of content creators don't have guidance when they get started. Um, and that really matters, whether it's being created in a central team or those local teams who are going to create some content or even onboard agencies or vendors who help them do it. It's giving teams, there is some kind of starting guidance, uh, pointing back to a lot of what we said of the buyer understanding their journey. And then there are some key guidance points about your messaging and how to create content from that and really operationalize that so there's good cross-sharing. So Jen, I have another example around the localization issue that's really more tactical in nature, but it's important. So uh, I've talked with clients and I've actually had this experience myself as a practitioner where um, there's a complaint from the region that complex content, for example, brochures with graphics and visuals that mixed that mix text and images together are provided in formats that really can't be edited. And this is particularly tricky um, when you're moving from uh, Roman languages to character-based languages. Um, it makes it very, very hard. And in essence, what some of our Asian stakeholders have had to do is completely redo brochures, which costs more money than intended. So it becomes really important in the planning stage to figure out the format that's going to work so that content can be effectively adapted, right? You wanna be um, helpful to your regions and uh, cost-effective as possible. Great, so let's dig into the good stuff. What's the recommendations here and some of the best practices? You know, we've, you're, you're sort of pointing at some of this with the data, right? Um, but really, you know, where should leaders be starting and thinking and orienting themselves when they're looking to tackle some of these challenges? Back on that um, global local angle, particularly in the campaign context, we talk with teams um, and you see them doing really well where those teams from kickoff uh, to deciding on the, the themes and doing that upfront content planning are really getting the input going back and forth between them. Um, in particular, you know, there's some sensitivity about a regional marketing team feeling like they're treated as an execution arm, when in fact, they've got a lot of insights about buyers, customers, what what the local you know buying group is doing and how that dynamic works. So a lot of that is building in the time to understand the audience 
and have those upfront discussions before content gets underway. Right. And you know what? I'll bring up another point, which is about using data to inform the content plan. So content process and performance measurement is what we talk about. So it's not just about um, how does content help turn contacts into leads? There's a bigger story there, and that's about measuring content process as well. Did you did the majority of the content produced get used? Did it get used in the way that was intended? Um, you want to, in order to really improve the overall content experience, you have to think of a compilation of metrics to look at. And it, what's really important there is your universal taxonomy, the way that you tag content for findability and, and in addition for measurability. Uh, one thing that we notice is that as companies move toward audience centricity, for example, um, they are tagging content uh, for audience journey. For, right, for the uh, segment of the journey that the content is intended. And in terms of a best practice, we want companies to go ahead and actually look at whether or not the content was indeed uh, consumed at that point. That's super helpful in what's produced going forward. And what about, you know, you touched on this a little bit, you know, the, having those buyer insights and those local buyer insights, but then what about the actual creation and collaboration on the strategy of the content that is going to be used by the regional teams. Um, I'm sure there's there's something there. I mean, we've touched on it a little bit, but it it feels like um, your sort of build build in time comment earlier, Lisa, is is one that should be taken to heart. Yeah. So when they've done that, you know, that audience work and really understanding what are the audience's information needs, um, their preferences, whether it's content format type or their interactions, um, and then working back and forth as a team of, do you have existing content that could be used in the campaign? Let's just use the campaign example since we're there. Um, it's also understanding you're going to go formulate and produce some content, probably some by central team, but the reality, you never go completely central. So at a local level, it's nice to be clear on who is creating what, You know, if you're interacting with global or local vendors or agencies. Um, what are the review cycles going to be like? Do people have visibility into the content? You may discover some really excellent content, particularly if there's something locally generated, maybe market conditions change and other teams around the world could use it. Um, you've really got a gem on your hands that you, you can and should reuse. So a lot of that is discovering that early enough that you don't have some stranded assets. It's also looking at some of the team before it goes live. There's consistency in looking at to Phyllis's point, how has it been made available in different systems? How would audiences potentially see this from you in different parts of the world? Um, you really could pick up on some great things that are done in some of your regions uh, that really lends, you could learn and iterate as a global team, particularly because a lot of times your content isn't created all at once or activated all at once. So maybe you've learned something that as programs go on, you can and should be doing in the next few months or next few quarters. You can always keep improving and taking some of the best practices from what you've done. So as we close on this conversation, let's say we're having this, you know, we revisit this topic and, and we return to discuss sort of like the state of content and localization. What are you what are you hoping that we're we're discussing or is becoming the norm a year from now? 
Well, one of the things um, that certainly shows up in our um, future of content uh, research is the increased use of content modules. So this is the idea of basically chunking up your content into pieces that can be used individually and uh, pulled together as a set to create content. It's something we see done, for example, in sales enablement where marketing folks are producing um, PowerPoint modules that can be taken apart and put together and that are organized um, according to a taxonomy that allows a sales rep to say, well, I need two slides for this and three slides for that. That's uh, one form of modular content. That same approach can be, take, can be taken in long copy, uh, if you will, so that folks can take chunks from here and there and rest easy, if you will, in that the messaging is right and put those chunks together. So of course, getting content uh, into chunks like that makes it easier for regional folks to put together what they need uh, and adapt it, right? So it's just a way to really make content adaptable. So that's one of the things we certainly hope to see. Lisa, I think you have another couple of ideas here, yes? Yeah, so to build on that, you're, you're absolutely right, Phyllis, that we hope a year from now, if teams have had the conversations so they really do understand the local buying dynamics, who's in the buying group, um, how they're they're approaching things and the content they prefer, you learn from what you're doing. So to your point, you could use those modules and figure out what has been working. Um, I also hope with teams, they're also going to have a better common understanding about what content by stage of the journey they should be using. So it's easier as you're onboarding agencies, vendors, new content creators in your organization you start from a better common foundation, if you will. And that way you're not having some of the misses. Great. Well, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.